Welcome to Role-Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role-playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 83, Fantasy Games Unlimited. So, here's why I have to admit something. I'd originally planned to do a 2022 gaming news recap for the first show of 2023, However, a couple of weeks ago, listener Larry Anderson reached out to me on the Bad GM Productions Facebook page and asked when we were going to cover Fantasy Games Unlimited. Since we don't typically cover current stuff, and since I'm always telling you to reach out on the socials if you got something you want me to cover, I scrapped the news show and decided instead to cover our requested topic. So with that said, let's crank up the tour bus and get to it. Now, before I start the deep dive, I need to point out that FGU and its founder, Scott Bizar, are so tied together, I'll probably be swinging back and forth between the two as I lay things out. But I'm going to do my best to keep things in a chronological order, I just wanted to get that point out first. Scott Bizar was one of those gamers and producers of product who really didn't like what TSR was putting out in the mid-1970s. Bizar had gone on record over the years for disliking D&D and having a serious dislike for Warriors of Mars. If we're being honest here, he's not the only one who disliked Warriors of Mars, I'm just saying. Bizar just took his dislike for TSR a couple of steps further and decided to start his own publishing company. So in the summer of 1975, Bizar opened the doors on Fantasy Games Unlimited, which he based out of Jericho, New York. FGU's first two products were the 1975 release Gladiators and 1975's Royal Armies of the Hyborian Age. Gladiators was created by Hugh McGowan and was a man-to-man miniature combat system and war game. Lynn Carter, who was Bizar's roommate at the time, co-designed Royal Armies, which was a war game set in the world of Conan. Yes, that Conan. According to multiple gaming writers and historians, Royal Armies of the Hyborian Age was a first-of-its-kind war game and sold fairly well upon its release. By 1976, Dungeons & Dragons had shot up to the top of the hierarchy of tabletop role-playing games, and Bizar took note. He decided at that point that FGU needed to get into that portion of the game world, so he began to look for creators to produce product. Now, before we get deeper into who Bizar found to release the first role-playing game, I wanted to take a moment to break down how FGU worked with the creators of product. This isn't something we cover very often, but since I kept running into these details during my research, I wanted to include them so we get at least a basic idea of how the tabletop role-playing game business worked, or at least how it worked in the late 1970s, and more specifically, how it worked with FGU. So here's how it went. Bizar and FGU sought out amateur creators and freelancers to create games, and they'd pay them 10% of the gross sales of the product. On top of that, FGU copyrighted the games in the name of the designers, which meant the designer could earn more royalties should there be any other products produced based on the games, like novels, miniatures, you get the point. To put that into perspective, Wizards of the Coast does not pay their designers that way, and they sure as hell don't copyright the games in the name of the creators. In fact, we've seen over the past couple of years, there are a number of disgruntled creators that have worked for Wizards in the past who've aired their dirty laundry about the pay process. That information is available online for all to see, and we might cover that in a future episode of the show. So, with the focus of FGU shifting, Bizar needed to find some creators, and he needed to find them fast. At Gen Con 9 in 1976, he found two, Edward E. Symbolist and Wilf K. Backhouse. 
Symbolist and Backhouse had brought their game, Chevalier, with them to the con in the hopes of finding a publisher. Now, we've covered this game in a past episode. You don't remember? How about Chivalry and Sorcery? That's the name Chevalier was released under when Bizar made his deal with Symbolist and Backhouse when they decided to pass on TSR's offer and sign with FGU. It took a year to get all the particulars of the rules worked out, as well as the name change, but Bizar worked closely with Symbolist and Backhouse to get the process completed, and the game released in 1977 as the first tabletop role-playing game released by FGU. As the 1970s rolled on, Bizar decided that with a fantasy game under the FGU banner, he needed a science fiction game to act as another tentpole for the company. With the success the company had already had with working with Symbolist, Bizar tapped him, along with Phil McGregor and A. Mark Ratner, to produce it. An interesting tidbit is that during the two-year process of creating the game, Bizar never met any of the three men face-to-face. All of the creative process was handled through correspondence, which should be noted would have had to be completed by postal mail, since the internet really wasn't a thing at the time. By 1980, the game was finished and released as Space Opera. Space Opera also sold fairly well and accomplished its goal of being the second tentpole for FGU. Another big 1980 piece of news was that FGU was awarded the all-time best ancient medieval rules for the 1979 H.G. Wells Award, which was presented at Origins 1980. Chivalry and Sorcery, as you would expect, was the game that earned them that award. One thing you're going to notice as we work along this timeline is that FGU didn't really release supplements or other ancillaries to support their games. That was by design. FGU's thought on the process was to put all their efforts in producing new role-playing games, moving from one game to the next to the next. And it's also been noticed by more than one writer that hardly any of the game systems utilized to build these games were compatible. So FGU didn't use the TSR, Wizards, White Wolf, etc. thought of creating games in multiple genres and hanging them on a single engine. Also, this plan pretty much negated the portion of the deal with the writers about them owning the rights for ancillaries since they just weren't produced. By the early 1980s, Bizar had noticed that there were a number of publishers who'd tried to do the very thing he'd done but had gone out of business. So he did what any good entrepreneur would do and started picking up the product lines they'd let go out of print. This started with the games Bushido and Aftermath in 1981 and continued when he purchased the entire backstock from Heritage Game in 1982, headlined by the game Swordbearer. In subsequent interviews, Bizar claimed that he made that deal because he felt that it was only appropriate to purchase all of the games to get the one he wanted the most. FGU capitalized on their investment by releasing an FGU version of Swordbearer in 1985. By 1987, Bizar had decided FGU needed to cut some costs, particularly in the area of warehousing product, so he started exploring options around the U.S., settling on Arizona. It helped that Arizona was where Flying Buffalo Games was headquartered, and that mattered because Flying Buffalo was owned by his friend Rick Loomis. Tempe was the city chosen as the new home, and Bizar rented both office and warehouse space there. However, FGU was having some financial issues at the time, so Bizar wound up taking jobs to support both himself and his company. For the record, his first gig was selling cars, while his second was teaching school. Things got so bad at one point that it was thought that FGU would cease to exist. Bizar wasn't ready or willing to go there at that point, so he turned to opening a game shop in Gilbert, Arizona. 
called Waterloo, Bizar stocked it with product from his parents who owned their own Waterloo stores in New York. To save cash, Bizar moved the FGU office and warehouse to the game shop. In 1991, Fantasy Games Unlimited Inc. was dissolved as a New York corporation, which makes sense since Bizar had been running things out of Arizona for four years at that point. However, things would start getting worse for FGU. Before it got worse, it got a bit better, at least for Bizar anyway. He opened a second Waterloo store in Phoenix. Almost immediately after that opening, it was discovered that an employee of the Gilbert store was taking out credit cards in Bizar's name. The employee was opening bank accounts in Bizar's name and even went so far as to put up the stores as collateral for loans. Needless to say, Bizar lost a whole lot of cash due to this and was stuck fighting lawsuits for years. The Phoenix store was the victim of this as it closed in 1996. Another victim of the issue was FGU as a whole, as Bizar had been working on the process of getting some of the older games back into print while also working to get some new games up and running. Needless to say, the cash crunch brought all of those plans to a screeching halt. Now, remember a few minutes ago when I mentioned that all of the games produced for FGU were copyrighted in the names of the creators? Yeah, this is where we start getting into some pretty hinky shit. In 1996, Gold Rush Games was prepping to release a third edition of Bushido using the license they'd gotten from the original authors per the contract they'd signed with FGU. Bizar decided he wasn't letting that fly and instead rushed his own version of the game into print and threatened to sue Gold Rush if they released their version, even though in theory they legally could have. Now, how could he do this? I mean, we've mentioned twice now that the games were copyrighted in the names of the creators. So that should mean that the creators owned the rights and could publish with whomever they want, right? Well, Bizar had his own thoughts about that. Never mind the fact that by the 1990s, FGU was basically a dead company. Bizar claimed, and would continue to claim, that the games were still in print due to the backstock he was selling out of his stores. He didn't stop there. He claimed ownership over all FGU trademarks and claimed that this didn't revert to the creators, though he assured them they still had the other rights as established in their contracts. This has continued to be Bizar's modus operandi. He threatens lawsuits to keep other publishers from publishing updated versions of games once produced by FGU. That being said, though, he's willing to sell the rights to any game, provided the purchaser also buys all of the backstock he's got for it. In my opinion, the classic definition of when is a deal, not a deal. In 2000, Bizar brought FGU into the digital age, cranking up a website to sell the backstock of FGU games. As Shannon Applecline noted in his 2011 book, Designers and Dragons, the backstock is, quote, extensive, end quote. He also started the process of publishing reproductions of the old materials, which was his way of trying to hold off other publishers who wanted to print new editions. The 2000 website was shut down by 2006, but I was unable to find out just why. That led to the launch of a new FGU website in July of 2006. New home, same deals. Bizar was still selling off Backstop, but this time Bizar decided to print a few new books under the brand. The first book was a second edition of the old Dinosaur Games title, Aftermath Technology, in 2008. He added two supplements for the game that hadn't seen print previously, both written by David Harmer, who was the creator of the original Aftermath Technology. 
The titles in question were Aftermath Survival Guide in 2008 and Aftermath Magic in 2010. I just like doing Aftermath Technology. Sorry. Also in 2010, Bizarre published some original PDFs for Villains and Vigilantes, then dropped them for free through the website. This caught the attention of the writers Jeff D. and Jack Herman, and they decided to fight back. Their argument was that their agreement was with FGU and not Bizar personally. So in their opinion, that meant Bizar didn't have the right to publish anything related to villains and vigilantes since FGU as a publisher was basically done. With that in mind, they sent Bizar a cease and desist letter in June of 2010, which informed him he no longer had permission or rights to publish their materials, especially since they owned the copyright. They fired a second shot by forming their own company, Monkey House Games, and released version 2.1 of Villains and Vigilantes almost immediately thereafter. There's even more to this story. As of this recording, Bizar has refused multiple offers to get a license allowing him to publish Villains and Vigilantes materials. He's also refused arbitration with Dean Herman. The problem with that is that Dee and Herman both have claimed on numerous occasions that arbitration is required through the contract they signed with FGU. Bizar just wouldn't stop though. He printed what are called giant volumes that collected a number of the old villains and vigilantes materials. He also released some new materials. Escape from the Micro Universe for Villains and Vigilantes in 2011 and the Gauntlet for Aftermath also in 2011. As of the recording of this show, Bizar is still running an FGU website, fantasygamesunlimited.net, and it sells all of that backstock he's been trying to sell for years. If you're interested, check it out. Now, no matter what you think of Bizar and his antics, you have to give props to a company that, over its history, published 52 different games. And for fans of FGU's various products, they are games that they still swear by and either play faithfully or lament having gotten rid of years ago. So, if you look on the timer on this show, you'll notice we've still got a decent chunk of time left. I thought we might use this time to cover three of the FGU releases over the years. I know I didn't advertise that up front, so let's just call this bonus content. We'll start with Bushido. Written by Robert N. Charette and Paul R. Hume, it was originally published in 1979 by Tier Games, but it never got much of a push since Tier went out of business almost immediately after the release. Rights then shifted to Phoenix Games, who got it out wide in 1980. However, Phoenix went out of business shortly after that, and FGU picked up the rights in 1981. The initial release of Bushido was a boxed set, including a trifold GM screen, a character sheet, Book 1, The Heroes of Nippon, The Player's Guidebook, and Book 2, The Land of Nippon, which was the GM's book. Charette owns the copyright for all of the artwork in the box, which is really hard to find these days. By the FGU days, it was combined into a single book that combines both books in the set, which of course leaves out the screen. It has been noted over the years that the creators have credited Chanbara movies, especially the Kurosawa films, as inspiration for the game. If you were paying attention earlier, Bushido is still available from the Fantasy Games Unlimited website, but I have no idea if it's an actual copy from the 1980s or as a PDF, because quite frankly, I didn't dig that deep into the website. With history out of the way, let's dive a bit into the game itself. As with most role-playing games of the time, and of today if we're being honest, Bushido characters are defined through their attributes, skills, professions, and levels. The professions in the game are Bushi, or fighters, Budoka, or martial artists, Yakuza, or gangsters, 
Ninja, we know what those are. Shugenja, or wizards with a Tao flavor. Gakusho, or priests. They're either Buddhist or Shinto in Bushido. Another trend of the time is character advancement through both training during downtime and level advancement. However, using something unlike other games, Bushido only has six levels for characters to progress to. Much as in Japanese culture, social aspects are very important in Bushido. At creation, each character is assigned a class, which they'd been in since birth, within the strict feudal hierarchy of Nippon. The choices are Samurai, Eta, and various commoner classes. These tie into level advancement as honorable behavior and loyal service to the character's social group are just as important as defeating your enemies in battle. For the record, we're talking about loyalty to the local lord, ninja clan, temple, gang, and the like, depending on the game. Bushido rolls use various dice in the dice bag, though most of the important rolls are made with a d20. These rolls can be modified at the GM's whims due to social obligations and the like. These social obligations can also allow the GM to create scenarios that can only be solved by nonviolent means. Again, this isn't overly different from other games, but the social obligation base for the game ties into this, which does make it different. One more note. Shugenja and Gakusho can use magic, as you might have assumed from the character list. Magic in the game also allows for supernatural monsters to appear, again at the GM's discretion. Over time, six supplements were published for Bushido, four by FGU, and two that appeared in the pages of White Dwarf magazine. A seventh supplement, Ninja Shadows Over Nippon, was completed but never released. In digging through the reviews for Bushido, I could say without a doubt that feelings about the game were seriously divided. I can do an hour's worth of reviews, but I pulled two to give you an idea. In the June-July 1979 edition of Different Worlds magazine, Stephen L. Lortz said the rules were, quote, well-written and logically ordered, end quote. He also enjoyed the, quote, on points, end quote, added that it, quote, places Bushido outside of the kill and pillage category of RPGs. On encourages players to steal their characters into social and political as well as combat situations and does much to generate the authentic flavor of the game, end quote. He closed by saying, quote, I highly recommend Bushido to people who are interested in running a fantasy campaign based primarily on the Japanese mythos and to people who are interested in the art of role-playing game design, end quote. In the 1980 issue of The Space Gamer, Forrest Johnson summed it up like this, Karate fans and samurai might dig this one. Serious students will just have to wait for something better. End quote. In spite of the mixed reviews, the 1996 reader poll in Arcane Magazine that I like to use placed Bushido at 17 when ranking the 50 most popular role-playing games of all time. Paul Pettengale said this, quote, Those of us who've had the pleasure of playing Bushido over an extended period of time have noticed that this is a game which lends itself far more towards campaign play than one-off scenarios. Consequently, it takes a lot of effort and dedication on the part of the players and referee alike to play through, and even more effort to run successfully. Nevertheless, the effort is rewarded with fun, albeit a somewhat reserved, thoughtful kind of fun, rather than the more gung-ho kind of action you would usually expect from the likes of AD&D, end quote. The next game from FGU that I wanted to check out is Aftermath, because I like saying that. Created by Paul Hume and Robert Charette, as we mentioned earlier, it was released in 1984. Aftermath is set in a post-apocalyptic world in which the characters have to fight for food, water, basic supplies, and shelter. 
One note about Aftermath is that the GM was responsible for setting up the nature of the apocalypse that set up the game. However, the setting is dominated by dragons, and the best example I could figure out is the movie Reign of Fire, if you remember that flick. If you don't, peep some scenes on YouTube and see what I'm talking about. Over the years, 15 different supplements have been published for Aftermath. Only a few of these came from FGU, however. The rest were from independent publishers or online from the creators themselves. Recapping what we discussed a few minutes ago, Aftermath came originally as a box set containing three rule books, the basic rules, player's guide, and a GM's guide, along with an introductory scenario, character sheet, a three-panel reference sheet, counters, and a feedback sheet. But let's get into the specifics of the game itself. Characters in Aftermath are rated on six stats, wit, will, strength, deftness, speed, and health, and they use a six-tier rating system. One to five is below average, six to 10 is average, 11 to 14 is above average, 15 to 24 is superior, 25 to 34 is above superior, 35 to 40 is heroic. Characters also have a set of talents, charismatic, combative, communicative, aesthetic, mechanical, natural, and scientific. Talents control the progress in skills, and in a pinch, you can use these as natural talents instead of skills. Just in case I haven't made it obvious though, Aftermath is what is best defined as a true skill-based system. There are no levels per se. Characters have their set of skills and those define what tasks they are proficient in and those can be increased. That process is rather fluid and is based on the use of talents during gameplay. To simplify it a bit, a specific talent that's successfully used during gameplay is raised immediately after it's used. It should also be noted that skills are rated on a skill score and that is converted into a d20 roll to make it easier to use. And this is a low roll good system, so if the d20 roll is below the skill, the task succeeds. Combat in Aftermath works via a tier system. Basically, it works like this. Players only resolve the combat to the level of detail needed per the encounter. So that means they can skip complex combat resolutions if they need to for the pace of the game. A basic attack roll is a d20. If the target is an extra, no damage needs to be rolled. An average attack is d20, then roll damage. If we do this process in detail, it's the d20, then a hit location, which is a percentile, then the damage. Attacks against the PC is d20, hit location, then resolution of special effects. That's, that's the difference. Each weapon or attack method used has a different number of damage dice, which is expected. I know we don't need to define this, but let's do it for those who aren't quite as experienced. Melee weapons use the character strength stat as the damage die, while firearms have a fixed number of damage dice based on the caliber of the weapon. Pretty much everything else the player needs to know to play the game is on the character sheet. So let's check our reviews. William A. Barton's review in the Space Gamer number 43 was thus, quote, if your taste in role-playing games tends towards simplicity or to systems that are easily playable without a lot of work, you'll surely want to pass up Aftermath and stick to Gamma World or the Morrow Project. If you thrive on complexity, countless calculations, and mounds of information, Aftermath will give you that and more." End quote. In White Dwarf, Andy Slack proclaimed his love for the game, giving it a 10 out of 10. He also compared it favorably to Bushido and the Morrow Project. In that 1996 Arcane Magazine poll for the 50 most popular role-playing games of all time, Aftermath came in at 29. Here's what Paul Pettengill had to say. Quote, Aftermath can be a harrowing game. 
Still, in the hands of a decent ref, it can also be one of the most involving to come out of the pre-1985 boom, with plenty of scope for freeform campaigns, end quote. Last up, let's take a look at Swordbreaker. Originally released by Heritage Games in 1982, it was acquired by FGU in 1985, reprinted, and re-released. B. Dennis Sestere was the primary creator, but Arnold Hendrick is also credited for his contributions. And for those fans of game art, Dennis Lubay and David Helber get the credit for the artwork. The original 1982 release was a digest-sized box, which had three digest-sized books, of which two had 48 pages, and the third clocked in at 32. The box also included a character sheet and dice. FGU's 1985 release was exactly the same as the 1982 release, but Scott Bizar decided that for the next printing, it needed to be a standard-sized box set, and it had two books, one at 60 pages, the other at 32. Swordbearer got a single supplement from FGU titled Dwarven Halls. It dove into detail on, you guessed it, dwarves. It also handled descriptions of the other inhabitants of Long Valley, which was intended to be a locale that could be dropped wholesale into any fantasy setting, as the outside world isn't really mentioned often. Now, Swordbearer never sold very well. The Heritage Edition's weakness has been considered by most to be the digest size, which made it difficult to stick out amongst the crowd of games and stores. It's also believed that the innovations of the game, which we'll cover in a moment, are also to blame. But let's not just blame Heritage. The game didn't do a whole hell of a lot better under FGU's watch. Going back to the writers, they tend to believe the blame lies both in the complex rules and FGU's focus on chivalry and sorcery. However, all of that being said, you can still buy it from the FGU website. Oh, and to back up a segment, Aftermath is also available on the website. Taking a look at the innovations of Swordbearer, we have to begin by noting that characters have no classes or professions. Instead, they learn whatever skills they need from six different spheres of skills. On top of that, this is a moneyless system. Characters increase their social status, which gives them access to all the things they need. Needless to say, playing out of character or contrary to expectations can lead to a loss of status, which means you lose your stuff. Magic is based entirely on elemental summoning and spirit control, which was a fairly new idea at the time. That's the summary. Let's detail dive, since this is what we do best on this show, and this is just a brief breakdown of the innovations. I mentioned the lack of classes. Skills come in the form of skill specializations, of which characters usually have two from areas like fighting, magic, stealth, town, country, and arts and crafts, though those aren't all of them. When learning skills from within the specialization, characters learn them more efficiently, though it should be noted that technically every character can learn any skill. I mentioned the lack of money and the focus on social status, so there's no need to expand on this. There's a huge amount of playable races for characters. Now, you get the usual, elves, dwarves, humans, and such, but dragons, centaurs, and gargoyles, among others, that we recognize from other games are also playable, as are some game originals like bunrobs, which are humanoid rabbits, and moon spiders, which are intelligent arachnids. Magic is based on a node system, and the nodes are keyed to various elemental or spirit foci. The power of each node is linked to a specific spell. The other innovation is that each spell requires a certain size node, so you'd have to make sure you had the right node for that three-node fireball. Needless to say, a one node wouldn't work. Hell, if I can completely understand this rule, but for those who love the game, they say it comes easily. 
Religious magic in and of itself doesn't exist. Basically, priests use the same system as everyone else. Initiative is determined by skill. Every weapon in the game has both an accuracy and speed skill. Attacks are dealt out by the speed skill in descending order. Truth be told, Swordbearer might have just been a little too ahead of its time. If it was a new release today, it would probably be an industry sweetheart, at least for a bit. In the early and mid-1980s, on the other hand, it just couldn't get enough of a hold on the market to sustain itself. And with that, we come to the end of today's show. Big thank you to Larry Anderson for the suggestion, and if you want to hear something specific, do what Larry did and hit me up on the socials. Next week, we dive two games, Capes, Cowls, and Villainous Foul, and Brave New World. Wait a minute, I think I know a band named Brave New World. Hmm. As always, I encourage you to check out our other podcast, Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. This season, we're building a campaign for the Fallout role-playing game, and this week, we continue to build the early part of our campaign. Bad GM's Campaign Build Along is available wherever you get your podcasts or from our website, badgmproductions.net. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your royalty-free, license-free music needs. Role-Playing History is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod. Twitter at Bad GMP. YouTube and Tumblr, it's Bad GM Productions. You can email us at badgmproductions at gmail.com. And online, our website is badgmproductions.net. Next week, it's Superheroes and a Brave New World. You're definitely going to want to check that out. But that's next week, folks. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis, and you're Role Playing History.